0: This is a CBC Podcast. Uh, well, this is going to be really fun. We're sitting down with Bruce Ross, uh, a... a Nova Scotia at heart, but uh living all the way over in, in uh, Ontario. Uh Bruce, you were you were born and raised in Nova Scotia. Uh
1: you were when were you born? What year were you born? I was born in nineteen fifty-nine, so I'm sixty-two years old. And I uh yes, I was born and raised. I was actually born in Kentville, but I moved to Dartmouth when I was six, lived there ever since until nineteen eighty seven. And then I moved to Ontario to Chatham, about three hours west of Toronto, where I've lived over lived, until 19, uh, sorry, 2019, retired. And I, I lived uh, with my wife, Cheryl, about two hours north of Toronto near Collingwood. Oh
0: ah, yeah, Hi. beautiful Collingwood. Very, yeah. very nice up that's, there. Uh, oh, that's lots really snow, cl- cl-
2: but. yeah, Really, uh, really close <laughs> to where I, I got my puppy dog. Uh, yeah, that's outside. right. That's right. Yeah, just outside of Barrie. Oh, yeah, um, okay, you gotcha. Yeah. So my, my dog is from Ontario. It's oh, kind of okay. like, he, he like switch spots with you. Yeah. yeah totally.
0: <laughs> so the, the, the reason I'm so excited about this is that, um, you know, we, over the six years of doing the show, we've, we've spoken to a lot of people over the years that have dealt with uh, mental health issues. Sure. Um, and you know, we've covered depression time and time and time again on the podcast, but It is very rare for us to get an opportunity to talk about uh, something like depression with uh, someone of a a, a, and please don't take this the wrong way, Bruce, but someone of an older generation. You're a little bit older than we are. Um, And and so um, I think it's, you know, one of the things that I I really kind of want to like dive into at some point in this conversation is just the the sort of like generational differences of how we view and talk about mental health, uh, issues. And as someone who is, um, you know, uh, from, from a time that was far before we were brought into this world, um, you've dealt with depression for, for quite a long time. I, I, I take it.
1: It's been a, been a long journey, guys. It's uh, been incredible. It's been over 45 years, that's my entire adult life. That's longer than you guys have been on, on the planet. Yeah. Uh, when I say 45 years, that sounds as, as preposterous as Walt Chamberlain claiming in his book to have slept with 20,000 20, women. But <laughs> my case is absolutely true. It's, it's been the case. And, and you're right on, Jeremy. But what, I grew up in a time when mental health wasn't discussed at all, it was really an mm. unknown. I, we're talking about 1975. That's how far back it is. Grade 10 at Dartmouth High. That's when it started, although it wasn't diagnosed until 20 years, so I dealt with it on my own oh. for 20 years. But back then, the only thing you knew about mental health was through the movie, Jack Nicholson movie, One Floor of the Cuckoo's Nest, mm. and which was very abstract and, and very exaggerated case of a... Of, uh, of inmates, so um, patients in a mental health institution. And I knew I wasn't one of them, so to speak. So I dealt with depression from on my own, and anxiety too, I should point out, for over 20 years before my wife finally came to me and proposed that it was depression that I was dealing with. And then it set me on the journey to finding a solution to the illness after mm. that point. And it's only in the last what five or ten years that mental health issues have come out, and the the public has been somewhat informed and educated, mm. and mm. and uh, aware of what mental illness is all about. In many ways, it parallels what the, the lesbian gay community has gone through in the last number of years, mm. becoming more open and more I guess received is is a way of putting it. But you're mm-hmm. right; it's been a journey.
2: Bruce, when you when you say um, because like you you immediately you said you've been dealing with it for the last 45 years and and point back to this moment in grade 10 when you can remember at you know 17 years old that you first started to experience depression i want to get into that conversation that you had with your wife 20 years later and and yeah. how you got to this diagnosis but to look back and sort of compare and contrast the experience of getting diagnosed but also knowing so clearly that this like started at age 17 hmm. um, what was that experience like at 17 that 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 looking back now you can tell was depression starting in 10 to your life
1: yeah good question uh brian the it, it it wasn't really a defining moment it was just an evolution of of grade 10 uh of really kind of realizing that i felt displaced and i just felt bummed out and i felt like I didn't belong anymore in society, frankly. I just didn't feel like a part of the gang, a part of the group, so to speak. I just felt like I was being left behind. Um, I wasn't motivated. I just felt like I I wasn't part of the the team anymore. Mm -hmm. And it just kind of escalated from there. And then, unfortunately, there were events that reinforced my belief system that that was occurring. Mm and and I, I didn't define it as depression because we didn't know what depression was
2: mm-hmm.
1: and I just struggled I just knew something was askew but I thought if, if I could find myself and my ship would come in and I'll be well and I struggled like that for so, so many years it's just it's hard to fathom now when I reflect back knowing what I know now but It it was a, but just uh, the poor concentration. I, I, I. That was another characteristic that I was dealing with. I had trouble in school. Um, I got through, I think, based on my thanks to my my pure intelligence, but not through studying. I just couldn't concentrate. I felt Mm -hmm. like a lone loner. Like my self esteem was shot, and all these physical and, and mental symptoms that I didn't really couldn't put a label on, but I just knew that there was something wrong. And unfortunately I didn't have a very strong emotional relationship with my parents to talk to them about it. So it was just really left to my own devices.
0: I mean, like, do you think that again, just to kind of like touch on the generational gap here, like do you think that even if you did have that kind of relationship with your parents, that, that, Those types of, I mean, this is all speculation, Yep. but like those types of like, how do you think that would have went over if you did feel comfortable enough to, to bring this up with your folks?
1: Well, I I think one thing is it it would have, would have reduced the loneliness. What I know now is depression. One of the, the characteristics of depression that is so daunting is the fact that you feel so lonely. Mm. You feel like you're the only person in the world that's ever suffered from this illness, and and yet there's something like 280 million people worldwide that have depression. So I think that would have reduced that loneliness, which would have eased the pain. Mm. Would they Would they have reduced the 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 illness? Probably not, but it would have provided some relief. In yeah, the, uh, just having somebody to talk to instead of trying to deal with it on my own. Yeah, mm-hmm.
2: was it something that um like speaking of talking about it was it something that you would like ever brought up with friends do you ever remember like saying to your friends like oh, i don't you know i'm feeling kind of down or i i don't feel so great or i i can't really concentrate or talking about any of these symptoms or was this something like purely that you bottled up and just kept inside
1: purely bottled up i i can't oh. recall a, a time that I've ever spoke of of feeling displaced or lack of interest or all of these characteristics of depression. Cause I didn't know that's what it was. Yeah. But the only thing I, I really felt was later on in the university was Smitty who's in the book. Of course he, I, Opened up to him at that time. I still didn't know it was depression, but I opened up to him about how I always felt tired, and 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 we kid about how I need my beauty sleep all the time, <laughs> and that's one of the characteristics of depression too. You just feel fatigued all of the time. But that mm. was about the extent of it. Um, it is only been the last five or ten years that I've opened up at all to anybody mm. about depression, and now I'm quite open about it. It it's, the stigma has been reduced significantly, and and plus about the age, I don't really cares much anymore about what people think sure. because I'm retired I'm now you know married I've a family and so forth so uh, I I'm not c- climbing the corporate ladder I'm not concerned about discrimination or prejudice um and you know the social or peer pressure in my age group is a little bit less than it was in my 20s you know where you you had to put on a show and uh, quite often that's no longer there. So, you know, I feel much more at ease about myself. Mm. Um, You you
0: mentioned a book, um, the book in question there is Breaking Free of Depression's Grip. Uh, It's a book that uh, you had written, Bruce, and and was published uh, early this year in January, 2022. Um, uh, We'd love to talk a a little bit more about the book, but uh, before we do, I guess one of the things I'm kind of curious about is that, I mean, geez, you know, like the thought of someone living with depression for as long as you have, Bruce, um, Mm -hmm. I know that it's, it's probably safe to say there's been a lot of people that have had depression, um, back then and, and unfortunately didn't, didn't live as long as you did because of, uh, because the illness just sort of caught up with them and, and it got to a point where it was just too much. Um, I'm curious about like, you know, the, 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 the sort of, the sort of chronological evolution of your depression. Like I, I take it that it's sort of, that there were, there are, uh, you know, ups and downs, uh, throughout your life. Um, but do you recall like, especially in the, these early years when, when you really, you don't have much vocabulary to put to it, that it's really hard to conceptualize like what the fuck's actually going on in your, in your, your body, and your mind. Um, what were some of the like. Moments in your life that really stick out today, looking back, that seem to be like the really, really dark, like hardest moments that you've had to to kind of come to grips with.
1: That's a tough question, Jeremy, because they they're all and not to sound like a over dramatic, but they were all pretty tough times. Getting up in the morning and, and facing the world, frankly, um, there were some events perhaps that stood out a little bit more than others. Um, I didn't date very, at, hardly at all back then. I didn't have a lot of self-confidence, so being rejected by potential dates certainly just reinforced the state Ooh. I was in, in my mind. Um, I, I had issues with alcohol back then, not through alcoholism, but through binge drinking, through university and those type of years, Through, and there were a number of events that kind of reinforced that not in very good shape here, Bruce, because um, what what transpired when I did drink. It was an escape from what I was dealing with. I mean, one event was I, I after a night of heavy drinking, at night on town kind of thing, that I came home about two o'clock in the morning and took a wrong turn on my street and walked in and to my neighbor's house. And not only took off my shoes, but, but went to the fridge and rummaged through their refrigerator looking for something to eat. I thought it was my own house. The ir- irony of the whole thing was the neighbor had to be last name was the same as mine, which is Ross, right? But no relation.
0: You're still in a Ross house. I mean. <laughs> yeah, that's right,
1: exactly. Just the Ross household. That type of thing. Uh, you know, it was kind of a funny episode. Uh, I <laughs> witnessed it. So yeah. I was
2: I was waiting to see where that was gonna go because I was like starting I was starting to laugh, but I was like, okay, yeah, this could go this could go anywhere. This is actually a really funny story. I wish Taylor was here because uh, a friend of ours once, when Taylor wasn't drinking, accidentally gave him the wrong address oh no. in the middle of the day, and he walked into somebody's house and was going through the fridge and stuff. And <laughs> anyway, no. it's a wild story. We'll have to get him to tell it. But yeah, that that is yeah. uh, that is scary.
1: <laughs> there were certainly a couple of very dark moments around the same time through drinking that that, that reinforced what position I was in, and that was I, I was well called spade to spade. I was charged with DO, DUI under, and rightfully so on two different occasions within the, the space of a couple of years. And it wasn't that I was like joyriding; it was it was uh, trying to escape the pain, and um, that that just reinforced the how this, the, the the position I was in. Yeah. in pretty dark times for sure. What, it, like in those, it's in those I got through it when I reflect back.
0: Yeah, and so that's one of the things that I'm kind of curious about. Like in in reflecting on that, and knowing that there were some like really dark times, and again, again, knowing that in retrospect you were going through a period of, of time societally where the discussion of, of depression and mental health was not something that was being had at all. How did you, like, how did you get through those tough times? Why do you th- like, why do you think you're still here? How, how do you think, how do you think you had the resolve to like get through it all and get to where you are today?
1: Well, I, I've actually thought of that a number of times over the course of the years why I kept on chugging along. Uh, I've narrowed it down to really three. I think there's probably more, but three. And just to regress for a minute, there are three individuals, friends during that period that didn't get through. They, they all three of them died by suicide. So, mm. but I didn't. I, I marched onward. And to answer your question, Jeremy, I think it boils down to three main components, and one. And none of them are typical, but the first one is I always felt I had pretty good ethics and integrity. I'm not sure where that came from or comes from still to this day. But the ethics and integrity, I felt comfort that I, that I was pretty sound in that category, those categories. Uh, Martin Luther King Jr. Had a, has a quote or had a quote called, the time is always right to do what's right. And I always felt I adhered to that and there was some comfort in that in much the same way as people gravitate to religion and cling to religion when times get tough. I kind of cling to the ethics and integrity as a source of comfort that kept me marching on. Mm -hmm. The second one is is friends were instrumental at that point in time and even this day, but not friends in a traditional sense. It wasn't like I was a social butterfly or Mr. Popularity, but what it was was um I have pretty solid friends, core friends that I still have this day. And when I looked at them, they were good people, pretty sound, and and, and so forth. And I, I kind of used an association logic in the sense that if they thought I was okay, then using association, I must be okay, if that makes sense. Mm, yeah. So there's some comfort in that. And the third one, most recently, well, last twenty-five years, anyway, is my marriage to my wife Cheryl and my daughter Hannah. It's not because they pitied me or coddled me or, you know, made me out to be a victim. It's because they were kind of rocks have been rocks of Gibraltar's and were have been people in my life who have um, I want to aspire to kind of live up to. So those are really Ooh. the three things that got me through. And if you notice, none of them deal with love and that type of thing. I Unfortunately, I didn't deal – I didn't grow up in a very loving family relationship with my parents and and my two brothers. It was – I use the word emotionally indifferent uh, Mm. as as a family relationship. So love isn't what got me through. It's these three kind of practical or tangible um, criteria.
0: Yeah. Mm. But I mean – you know, I, I would to push back a little bit on yeah. that, and and not not to say that I I sure. I think what you said was bullshit, but like <coughs> you, love I think does play a role there a, a little bit. I mean, you you know you're, you're you're talking about your your support network, you know, the your family, your your yeah. your 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 child, your your wife, yeah. like that. There's a lot of love. There, right, like that. I mean, I, I mean, I, I'm a. I am I do not know you, Bruce, but yeah, you, seem sure. like a, you seem like a pretty loving guy. So I, I'm, I'm <laughs> going to say that there's, there's there's definitely some love in that, right?
1: Well, I, I'll i counter push back because yes, yes, God, let's Cheryl do this. She read my book, <laughs> she Read my book. She was kind of put off a little bit by the fact when I decide to marry her, when ask her to marry me, there was no, there's no uh, description of love and all that type of stuff. When I, I decided to marry, uh, ask her to marry me based on uh, practicalities that I couldn't do any better. That you know, I was getting older. It really wasn't loved in the picture, you know, and unfortunately, that's... Uh,
0: no, nah, but that's romanticism.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Who fucking needs romance? <laughs> romance is dead. <laughs>
0: <laughs> There's love in there somewhere. There's a kernel of it, I can, I can tell. <laughs>
2: um, tell sorry, us, tell I, us, sorry, sorry, Brad, go, well, go for well, it. Well, I was going to say, speaking of your wife and and uh, coming back to this, this uh, moment, you know, 20 years after you started... Um, dealing with depression in your life and uh, your wife approached you to Mm. talk to you about what you Mm. were experiencing. What was that conversation like?
1: Well, it was interesting. I was in a particularly somber day and she, I think it was in the kitchen. She said, she flat out where told me, she said, Bruce, I think you suffer from depression. Mm. And surprisingly I wasn't, Defensive or in denial, I actually accepted it that that could be the root of the problem, and I, in many ways, I felt like a, a a prisoner who who's been on the run for so long, and there's and he's finally trapped, uh, captured, and there's some relief that it's finally over. I felt that in, when she said that it could be depression, there was some relief on my part that it finally explained the 20 years of pain.
0: Mm. And I
1: thought, great. Kind of like an alcoholic is anonymous. You know, you accept it and you move on. That's the first step for recovery. I thought I would accept this depression and then get better from there on in. Unfortunately, it wasn't to be. It was quite a journey from there on after. But but that's why I felt uh, when she told me that. When
0: she told you that and, and you, you know, and it, and, it, and it clicked, it sort of made sense. What were the first steps that you took, if any, to to sort of explore this a little more and and maybe perhaps seek help?
1: Well, I I immediately, all but immediately called my family doctor, made a appointment with him and went in to see him. And of course, he he was totally overwhelmed by the number of patients that he had, and as you know, pretty typical in our healthcare system. So I explained to him how I felt. He indeed confirmed that it was a, that I had depression. He didn't elaborate. He would almost check him, um, see him checking his watch because he knew he had patients waiting in his waiting room, trying to get me out of there. He did prescribe a prescription of Prozac. This was in 1995, I believe when it was first Mm -hmm. diagnosed and that was, Prozac was kind of the wonder drug, so to speak, at the time. I thought my problems were over and it just went on from there. It Prozac didn't help, by the way. Mm-hmm. And and it just went on from there to escalated to more further in-depth treatments and much more of a journey, which the book delves into. Mm-hmm.
2: So when, I mean, I imagine that that's a pretty challenging experience to go into your doctor, feel like you know, feel like you, you get this sort of diagnosis that gives you some hope that you can find a, a, a fix for it. And then you start taking Prozac and it doesn't work. Like, did you immediately go back to the doctor and say, I need something else or this isn't working? Or, or how do the next steps sort of evolve from there?
1: Well, it's kind of interesting because... My, own, uh, my family doctor at the time, he had his own personal issues and he didn't last in, in, in the medical field for too long. And then I ended up going to Cheryl's doctor and he's the one who actually escalated treatment from there to a different medication and then two or three ones after that. And then he uh, kind of was out of his league. So he referred me to the chief psychiatrist where I was living at the time who I still deal with to this day and that's it was actually the psychiatrist who was as, uh, prescribed the medications, more than 20 that I've been on. Mm. And the other treatments that, that the book delves into the, the measures that I've undertaken since the diagnosis, the first really informal diagnosis by the family doctor was
0: there um, with that psychiatrist. Was there talk therapy involved in, in the process as well?
1: Not there was not with him, but it was one of the measures that he undertook uh, with me to, along with the medications, uh, cognitive behavioral therapy (CBT) it's called, is pretty standard approach apparently to depression treatment in conjunction with medications. And yes, to answer your question, I, I did a number of sessions with cognitive behavioral therapy with a, I believe a psychologist, I believe it was, and. I understood it from a logical perspective. It made sense from a logical perspective that I might have, well, not might, did have skewed thought perceptions of the world that, that were very negative and pessimistic. And he tried to change those to open up to have me see a new perspective mm. on the world. And I understand it logically, but it didn't uh, didn't embrace me emotionally, unfortunately. It kind of reminded me of, uh, Abstract analogy is it's fine to read a a, a a a book on how to play better golf, but three real as I go into the golf course and <laughs> yeah, shanked the luck. first tee like, shot <laughs> in the woods, you know. Just,
0: yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah. It's <mean>, yeah, <laughs> <that>, uh, <Translate. laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean, I, that makes a lot of sense to me. I, and and I know we you know we've talked to a lot of people in the show that have dealt uh, have have dived into the world of, of therapy and and CBT and, right. and uh, CDT and, you know, you name it. But, and for some people, it's like a really fucking life-changing, yes. you know, I mean, Brian, fuck Brian's probably going to talk about it at some point, but um, I love uh, therapy. Yeah, Brian loves therapy. <laughs> I, but I'm, uh, and, and he like that, I've, you're the first person I've ever ha- heard sort of that analogy is really great. You know, yeah. reading a golf book and then, but like trying to, <laughs> trying to put that to, to action like your yeah. your hips are gonna fucking do what they want your head's gonna come <laughs> up too quick anyway so
2: there's, there's like, a, but there's a and to that point though there's like there's i was talking to a friend who's in school to be a therapist right now and and she was saying there's like this there's sort of two steps there's this intellectual knowing yes and then there's this emotional knowing right. yes. so like yeah. it's like the emotional knowing comes from like digesting the intellectual yeah. knowing yeah like in a in a way that it comes into your core and being. Right. And I know that like with my experience with therapy, oftentimes, I mean, I've only been going for a, a year and a half, but I will like things I knew intellectually, the first few sessions I saw no change at all in the emotional sort of reaction to, to these situations. However, I'm just getting to that period in, in time where like, I'm starting to feel yeah. the emotion, or at least in the situation, I'm you start aware to catch of it. Yourself.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: And like, I hope that down the road yeah. that will be easier. But so
0: to that point, then my my question, Bruce, is um, you know, even though you you saw it from this perspective of of like the the reading the How to Be Better at Golf book, um, was there was there a sense of kind of like like a holy shit moment in in those those conversations that you were having with your psychologist that kind of made you go, Whoa, fuck, I didn't like, I didn't even realize that this could be stemming from this uh, incident in my life or, or I didn't, I, I never really put two and two together that, you know, this experience that I had has, has played out in this way. And so there's a way that I could kind of change the way I approach that from here going forward. Or or did it just never really kind of connected the way that you sort of hoped? I'd
1: love to be able to say it was wonderful, but I have to honestly say it never really connected. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Would you say, like,
0: would you say the the medication was really the thing that, you know, once you started to find the right meds, like that was the thing that made most of the difference?
1: Well, I actually uh, it's only been recently that I've had a change and, and we can maybe talk about that near the end of the the interview. But the 20 or so medications that I was on never never made a difference. They were I I wow. was told by my psychiatrist, uh, to use his words, I was a, I'm the most treatment resistant patient he's ever had. Oh wow. And uh because they just had They had some of the side effects, but not not the the intended effect. Mm -hmm.
0: And are you talking about 20 medications at at once or like 20 medications that you've cycled through over years?
1: Really cycled through. There were some that were taken in isolation. I'd try them, uh, try it, for example, Prozac, the first one. And then it didn't work, so i taper off that. Uh, then go through kind of washout period they call it start yeah. up a new one say wellbutrin which is a pretty standard antidepressant that didn't work and go through the cycle there sometimes i would have two different medications at, at, at one time two or right. two or three i think actually at one time uh, sometimes one in uh, isolation and so forth. So it's just different combinations over the years. But
0: yeah, right, right. I was gonna say I was like twenty medications at once. <laughs> no. Man, you're oh, re- yeah. you were really going deep on it. No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> no. That sounds hey. resistant as shit.
2: <laughs> you mentioned that uh, you didn't have necessarily the the positive effects, but you did have some of the side effects. And I know that side effects can be. Um, really challenging with those types of medications. What what are some of the side effects that you experienced?
1: Well, some of them were pretty typical. La- nausea is one example. On um, on a, a lighter hearted moment, it was in my book to start with, but my publisher took it out. She thought some people would be offended by
0: it. <laughs> I think oh, I knew where this was going.
1: <laughs> humor, but anyway, one was uh, <laughs> it stopped me from reaching orgasm. So yeah. that, was a, that was a serious <laughs> problem. So Cheryl must have thought I was on uh, that I was a uh, she was with the, a porn,
0: a porn star or something. <laughs> She's like, Bruce, it's been two hours. I'm wrong. Get fucking off me.
2: I can't believe your publisher made you take that in. Yeah, that's golden. <laughs> you got your podcasts
0: tell us about the book bruce um again it's breaking free of depression's grip um, a powerful success story what what where did the impetus come from to decide to write a book about your your experience with uh, depression
1: well the impetus originally originated over 10 or 12 years ago it was actually a self-help measure it was a therapeutic method hmm uh, that I undertook as because I'd read that if you have ruminating and depressive and you know worrying thoughts and all these type of mental health issues in your worrying around your brain, that if you put them on paper, it alleviates some of the the symptoms. So that's what I tried, and I did find it therapeutic. I like to write. I find I communicate better in writing than I do verbally. But then it escalated from there, particularly in the last couple of years with the onset of, of COVID and, and the escalation in, in mental health issues in the in the press and and, and and so forth, that there could be a market to share share the journey with others. So that's how it started. Uh, that's how it came to be. Um, but the book kind of somewhat what we've described already, it chronicles my uh, my journey really of 45 years of dealing with depression and I should say anxiety too. Anxiety has been a big component. Anxiety is a bit of a twin sister of depression that's mm. si- somewhat similar, but a little bit different, mm. but it chronicles those two illnesses. All mm-hmm. the professional and self-help measures I've undertaken to combat the illness. And also what I've learned, what I didn't learn, um, how I opened up about the illness in last number of years, um, some interpersonal issues that I, you know, that have risen over the years as a result of the disease, and so forth. But in the end, it's, it shares a journey. But it, and it is a message of hope. I, I, I like to think I've accomplished quite a few goals as a result of of trying to feel better about myself. Um, mm. I'm well educated in my post secondary education. Since moving to Ontario, I, I obtained my accounting designation, my financial planning designation, and my MBA just a couple of years ago when I was 55 years old. Mm-hmm. I've traveled all 10 provinces and 50 of the United States. Um, wow. I've, uh, I'm a lecturer at Fanshawe College in London. I, uh, after age 35 or 38, I trained for and completed five marathons. Wow. Uh, wow as a self-help measure, because I read that exercise c- helps to reduce the depressive effects. And when that wasn't enough, I took up triathloning. And when I was almost 42 years old, I completed three triathlons, pretty high-level triathlons in one summer, including a half Ironman triathlon. Wow. If you're not familiar with that, <laughs> that's uh, swimming two kilometers, biking 90, and running a half marathon it. It took me six and a half hours, but I finished it. Oh, man. But then I realized, you know, this is silly. This is kind of, this is not going to be the panacea to for the depression. So I kind of gave that up. But those are some things. So the book is really a message of hope that you can, you can still have a fulfilling and productive life despite the burden of depression. Yeah. That message doesn't kind of bonk <laughs> you on the head, so to speak. I don't have a big exc- uh, exclamatory um chapter on that but that's really the underlying message which i hope to get out there mm. so it's really fun
0: it, it it's interesting that you say that it's a, it's a story of hope because earlier in the, the podcast you know you you were saying that for the for the majority of your life you've you've been this like pessimistic um you know seeing the negative in all things but this sounds very opposite to that
1: there's certainly trying times, there's no doubt, but mm. one of the underlying characteristics or symptoms of depression is typically hopelessness. Yeah. And, and I, Even though I've analyzed it for a zillion times for many hours, I don't know why, but I've never really had hopelessness, if that makes sense. I always had hope, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Mm. I, I thought if I achieved the next goal, the next marathon, the next triathlon, the next uh, post-secondary education, I feel content with what I am, uh, with what I've achieved, that unfortunately really hasn't been the case, which kind of kept me pushing forward uh, when the when the finish line kept on moving back. But um, yeah, it's kind of a bit of contradiction between the pessimism and so forth mm. that I've had throughout my life. Um, and yet I've had to hope that I could, you know, escape from that um, if I just achieve one more goal. Mm. Mm.
2: in in terms of like uh, imagine in writing this book um e- e- and sharing it with other people you're, you're I mean you're sharing your story with mm. with the pu- general public right um at this point when you started writing had you and once you had get, gotten your diagnosis that you were dealing with depression did you start to open up to your your friends and talk about it as well
1: not really I it's Somewhat I did. I, I, I think I, I probably told a friend Greg Smitty in the book, well, he was probably the first person outside of my wife that I that I've been diagnosed with depression. But I, you know, that was 25 years ago. So mm-hmm. depression really wasn't in the mindset of individuals at that time. So in the last probably 10 years, that's been the case with Bell's Let's Talk and their campaigns and so forth. So mm-hmm. it, it it was, I was very cautionary to say the least that I didn't open up about it for some time. I opened up to my employer because I thought he should be aware of it. Uh, that was a little bit challenging because he's older than I, I was at mm-hmm. the time and was a little less understanding of mental health issues than I was certainly. But he he appreciated, my, you know, the fact that I opened up to him. But so it's only, I guess to answer your question, it's only the last prime. Five or so years, that I truly opened up about it. And, mm-hmm. um, but when I first writing started writing the book, it was more of a journey to the self help measure that I kept internalized. Mm-hmm. You
0: you've mentioned a couple times now, like these these sort of self help measures that you undertook to right. kind of combat the the struggle that you've been going through. One being the writing, and, and right. you know another being the the. Um, the just purely psychotic uh, exercise regime <laughs> that you seem to have taken on for a couple of years there in your thirties. Um, wh- are there other self-help measures that you, you sought out that, that were helpful for you?
1: I, I, uh, I'm trying to think here. I mean, I wrote, I, uh, not wrote, I, I read a number of self-help books, especially at the start. Um, I didn't leave it to the professionals, so to speak, the medical uh, profession to solve my woes. I took it upon myself. So in addition to the self-help measures that I explained a minute ago, I, I read a number of self-help books at the start, but they were similar to the golf analogy that I mentioned earlier. Yeah. They, and they seem to be somewhat simplistic as to solving a depression riddle. You know, the, uh, you know, there'd be a book called seven cure or, um, seven steps to curing depression and one of them would be to call a friend or something and, or another one would be take a 20 minute walk around the block. And I'm thinking, you know,
0: <laughs> that's all you got to do. Fuck. Yeah. That's all you got to do. Then, you know, you don't I'll, have to. I'll, I'll call someone or, on a 20 minute walk <laughs> yeah, and, then exactly. and then I'm set. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, so
1: the, But the self-help measures that I chronicled earlier were, were really the, the the major, the significant ones for sure. Mm.
2: Mm. was it disappointing like like finishing a half marathon and going fuck I don't feel any better
1: <laughs> it, it was it was a little bit deflating uh,
2: yeah
1: because I realized it didn't get at the core of the problem i mm-hmm. yeah. you know but i I was pretty naive I guess I believed that I did the half triathlon or half mar- um, half iron triathlon maybe mm-hmm. the next thing I'd do would would be would achieve Euphoria I guess and yeah, but then cool. you know a couple years a number of years ago I realized that wasn't the case, and I' kind of tapered off from that and mm-hmm.
0: earlier you had you kind of uh mentioned that there there's been like a, ch- a recent change in your your medication um well, like, where are you at now in terms of treatment and and what are you doing to to kind of mitigate the the depression
1: that's a good question uh, Jeremy, because about a year ago, my psychiatrist switched my drug to ruxolity which apparently it isn't actually an antidepressant it's actually an antipsychotic medication but which the medical um, prof- professionals sometimes use for major depression and i kind of humored them so to speak i said yes yeah, sure i'll try but you know after 20 or so other ones i really didn't have much faith but lo and behold after about a couple of weeks of trying the medication, the Rexalti, it, it did relieve the depression type of symptoms. You know, the stewing, the, the worrying, the the, uh, uh, the ruminating, uh, the overall depressed mood. Mm. All of these symptoms that that are symbolic of depression. And they did counter with other challenges. I you know the the physical challenges remain, such as the loss of appetite or no appetite the last, uh, la- uh, lack of uh, uh, energy, you know, the fatigue, uh, the challenges sleeping, those still remain. And then added to that was uh, were uh, two more challenges, and that is um, nausea, which is a pretty standard side effect of a lot of medication, and as well, I forget what the other, oh, lightheadedness. So mm. now I have that physical challenge it's interesting and I reason i bring that up is because it's it's an interesting trade-off that i've had to make it's relieved the mental challenges but i I'm, i've decided that that's more important than the physical challenges that it's kept or else enhanced yeah. but so I, I made that trade-off that really the my mental health is more important than my physical health mm. that's a tough trade-off to make but i, I because a lot of people wouldn't, you know, accept the nausea and all of these type of things. But I have because that's, I just want to be mental health, um, mm-hmm. uh, some freedom in that area.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Have you ever, like, has the discussion ever come up with your, your healthcare professionals um, regarding like alternative treatments, like like things like um, like ketamine uh ketamine drip treatment or like, or like psychedelic um, treatments to, to, to sort of explore if there's a, if there's any sort of relief in, in those types of.
1: Uh, Absolutely. I mean, over the years, I've, I've tried almost every conceivable and, and recognizable treatment option there is for depression and I was ready for that question, so I prepared a list of some of the options. I've already delved into some of them, the medications, the cognitive behavioral therapy. But I have tried the ketamine. The ketamine has been around for years. It's a drug since the 60s, the hippie drug of choice. And apparently it's been abused somewhat in recent years as a mm. drug, um, a date drug. But when it's used under proper, proper medical supervision, it's pretty effective, apparently, for... For depression, in fact was on the cover of Time magazine mm-hmm. a couple years ago as, as one of the as the most um, optimistic view or optimistic breakthrough in, in depression re- um, treatment since Prozac.
0: Yeah, especially for like treatment resistant. That's depression. correct. Yeah. Right?
1: Mm. So that's why I was a candidate. <clears throat> at that time, when I did it, it was conducted through an IV in your arm at the hospital. It took about an hour to, for the. Medication to you know go through its, its um um through the veins, so to speak, and then that was the end of it. You walk home from the hospital or whatever, and uh, it's supposed to make you feel better. You had a great buzz for the hour that you were on the ketamine, there's no doubt. While it was, being- yeah, I was
0: gonna say, were you tripping yeah. balls or what?
1: Oh, yeah, it was great. It was uh, <laughs> it without being sick, it was like, yeah. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Wait, what, what does it feel? Actually, just, it feel uh, like? Like just very euphoric.
1: I felt like it was very, uh, almost felt like a very dizzy feeling. Oh, mm. yeah. that's like sickness. Mm. It felt like uh, things were running around you, and but that was when it was strictly being administered. As soon as the the bag of, of solution was reduced, um, was gone. That was the end of it. It just it was, it was really? you know. Mm. But anyway, from a therapeutic perspective, it didn't, had no effect on me. So I, wow. I had the treatment three or four times, but it didn't. They now have uh, ketamine administered through the uh, nasal saline, spray. Uh, that's right. Spray. Yeah. But I haven't tried that. as It's just a different way of uh, doing it. The yeah. psychedelic, I know that's been in the news recently. I believe some mushrooms and so forth yeah. that they're looking at. I, I haven't pursued that option. I'm not sure at my age I'm going to. And plus, because of the Rexalti, I do feel better mentally. Yeah. But I've certainly tried other different, um, a number of other treatments, including the dreaded ECT, the electroconvulsive therapy, where they put you under and then shock your brain with the electrical current, put your brain into seizure. I, I tried that, and it it wasn't effective. I mm. it just, even though it's, it has a bad reputation, but apparently it's one of the most recognizable and, and um, Positive methods for depression treatment worldwide, but it it, it didn't. I just, yeah, uh, it's like, very
0: yeah, it's very different today. Uh, ECT than than it, than it used to be. Like it was, I right. think, it, it, early days of yeah. electro shock, ter- right. shock therapy was yeah, uh, right. really fucked up. But it, it's it's uh, it's definitely. Uh, it's definitely come a long way. It's not. It's not the. Yeah. It's not the old school shocking. <laughs> no, the uh, no. You know, put you in a cold bathtub and just toss right. a, to- a tossed a plugged in toaster in. You know, yeah,
2: it's less shocking now. <laughs> what they do.
0: That's right, <laughs> uh, Bruce. Bruce, what uh, what would you say is the biggest thing that your depression has taken away from you?
1: I I I think probably simply the joy in life. I you know, plain and simple. Despite having accomplished and, and been been quite fortunate with my life. What I've accomplished, um, my friends, my fam- you know, my wife and daughter, um, friends uh, that way, I just don't appreciate it as much as I should have over the years. It's been a, a very uh, challenging that way. Probably the, the biggest evidence of that or one of the biggest was Cheryl and I went to see Jay Leno perform mm. uh, his comedy act a number of years ago. And we filed out of the auditor, or the uh, theater, it was a great show, but I remember reflecting on how I didn't really enjoy it. There just, mm. and I same with Jerry Seinfeld, we saw him in Detroit a number of years ago, same thought. And when I left, you know, there's just something fundamentally missing that I haven't, despite seeing two of the best entertainers in the world not being, feeling mm. satisfaction from it. So mm. I think that's probably what is, has taken the biggest. Um, uh, I'm trying lost word here, but ha- has has been the biggest disappointment from depression. It's been mm. so long, and I, my grand, my uh, grandmother, when I was a young, you know, teenager, told me how life was a flash. And when she said that, I thought she was a kook for saying it. But now, as I'm in my sixties. I realized that's true, life is very short. And you know, I no longer have hair, Um, I can't do things. I I live to one of the greatest ski areas in Canada and yet I can't, my knees won't allow me to ski. So those times are over with, you know, and it's been so short and yet that time has gone by where I haven't enjoyed life to the fullest when I've had Mm -hmm. the advantages to do so. Long-winded explanation to your question, Jeremy and Brian, but.
2: Before you ask that last question, Jared, um, I wanted to ask one more thing about where you're at in your life right now. In terms of, uh, I know you mentioned that you recently retired, and uh, I, I've always been really curious about. There's there's been this conversation. Uh, I know that happens when people are getting ready to retire. When you know there's a deb- debate of like, is it the right decision? Because right. like once you retire. Then you can theoretically like do all these things you've been waiting to do or saving up for. But also, I know that in a lot of cases, work brings this element of purpose to your life. So, you know, going into work every day, you're working towards this thing. It keeps you like energized and and motivated to get up each morning. Um, what's it like, sort of being at that point in your life, living with depression and going through that transition?
1: I, interesting enough, it hasn't been that. That difficult for me to make the transition because I'm I keep myself quite a bit anyway because and so, so because I don't have the social fabric associated with the work really isn't a big um, change or burden to me because I've always been comfortable or since grade ten anyway in my own company more than uh, to some degree more than others so. Um, mm-hmm. with, without the social fabric, I've worked to go to each day in that structure in life. It's been okay because I can kind of do my own thing until service on my case, <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs>
1: puts it into that. But, but I, I'm comfortable in, in that respect, so it hasn't been a huge transition.
2: Has it been like? Uh, have you been able to? I know that you just said said that depression has largely taken away the joy in life. I, I know that some people look forward to retirement because, like, you know, you just can do whatever you want each right. day. There's a sense of joy in that. H- have you been able to feel or experience that at all?
1: No. Mm-hmm. The simple answer to your question, Brian, is no. I I manage, mm-hmm. but no. It's, mm-hmm. It is what it is, really what, what it boils down to. Mm-hmm. I wish so, I could say otherwise. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: What would you say is the biggest thing that you're – your struggle with depression has given you
1: well uh, that's an interesting question because i think um, it, perseverance i think this is probably in a one-word answer but the positives if i could extend that question the positives of have come out of depression is i i'm not convinced if i was more satisfied and, and content with life I wouldn't have had to search for contentment. I wouldn't have had to run the marathons, run, uh, do the triathlons, mm. um, do the traveling to get my uh, high level of education I did. I, I, I would have been satisfied without them. So I, I think if there's a positive, that is providing me perseverance to do that, to accomplish those goals. And mm. mm-hmm. in, in still living
2: with. Depression today. Uh, I'm curious about and like and knowing all of the things that you've you've tried throughout your life to 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 break free from depression's grip. um Can you tell us about the title "Breaking Free from Depression's Grip" and why you chose to call the book that?
1: That's a, that's a good question. That's, um, really, when people think of breaking three of course, they naturally think of this as a dramatic shift. But that's actually not the case with my title on purpose, Uh, although I don't explain that. I don't believe in the book. But breaking free really is, I guess, two components. One, I've been able to break free, but more of a process change, more of a process adjustment, and able to adjust to the depression and live a life relatively normally on the surface. So I've been able to break free of the clutches of what's, what's a burden in somebody's life and still accomplish regardless. So that's mm-hmm. step one. And this, the other component is I'm breaking free of the grip of the stigma associated with depression. Uh, in 1995, when it was first diagnosed, of course, I didn't say anything about it. I just, you know, because I was ashamed uh, uh, somewhat, even though there's relief that I had a definition of what it was. Mm-hmm. But uh, it it's... Uh, but I've been able to break free in the last several years, number of years, of the worry or concern about the stigma. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. that's really breaking free of that.
2: I, so really I think those really
1: those two components.
2: I think it's a, especially that first one. I, I think that's a really powerful message yeah. because I think a lot of people who who you know have you know struggles with their mental health or live with mental illness. Oftentimes, the goal is to find a cure to to not feel that way. Right. Um, and while you know, it's, it's an understandable goal that somebody would want to not feel that way. I think one of the first steps is, is being able to find a way to live with that first, because it's going to be maybe easier. Isn't the right word, but for lack of a better word, easier to, to find a way to live your best life with that and not, you know, to try to get rid of it because Mm. sometimes that's not possible.
0: Right.
1: Bruce, uh, where can people find the book? Well, there's a couple of different places. I actually have my own website that's pretty well done. I like to thank uh, my publisher said that for me. It's it's Bruce Ross. Or sorry, Bruce R. So there's two R's in there. I have to always say, unfortunately, Bruce Ross. That domain name was taken. So I would use my fine Scottish uh, middle name Roderick. Uh, so it was the R. So it's Bruce R. Ross, and it's also available through amazon but you know what isn't available through amazon well my book (laughs) is of course too so (laughs) that's uh, right i'll be uh um bold enough to show up the show the book that's the the title of the book breaking free depression's freshness grip um so that's it's 425 pages but it's an easy read i think it's a pretty sound read and unlike a lot of books on depression and mental health. It's not written from an academic or clinical perspective by PhD or MD, it's written from somebody who's been there. It's from the heart, really. And so I, I think people can relate to it. Even if you don't have depression, everybody knows somebody who does have depression and it's very difficult to understand what they're dealing with. It's just the commercials on television don't do justice you know, and but this book I, I think really does help to better understand what a mm-hmm. really the average Canadian is and American a North American um, is what it's like to deal with depression live with depression.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, again, folks, uh, the book is Breaking Free of Depression's Grip. Uh, the link to Bruce's website will be in the show description. Uh, Bruce, thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to sit down and chat with us. This has been really fun to, to get to know you and to hear your, a little bit of your story.
1: Mm-hmm. Thank you, Brian and Jeremy. Awesome. You great, uh, great uh, interviewers. Awesome. Made me feel very comfortable. Thanks very much.